This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. There are many social challenges facing women in Australia, and most of these have escalated throughout 2020, including financial insecurity and domestic and family violence. So what's been done about it? I'm Kate Mills, the host of Women's Agenda's new podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, supported by Salesforce. In this episode, I'm joined by Senator Jenny McAllister, the Shadow Assistant Minister for Families and Communities and a vocal advocate for greater reform in these areas. Jenny, fantastic that you could be here with us. I'm very excited to be here having this conversation with you. Thank you, Kate. Thank you for having me on the program. So I want to introduce you to our audience in terms of your long history of political involvement and actually because you joined the Labour Party in 1992 and you co-founded the Labour Environment Activist Network with Christina Keneally. Do you come from a political background in terms of your family? Well, not as such. So my family, this very strong interest in public affairs, and my mum was a teacher in the public schooling system, and my dad was an engineer and a planner, and he spent his career really focused on protecting and preserving public spaces in the north coast of New South Wales. That was his real passion. So those were the kinds of conversations that were happening around our dinner table about equality, inclusiveness, and the significance of education, the importance of protecting the natural environment. And you can, I know that you can see those things in the political interests that I've pursued as an adult, but they weren't the, they weren't party political. They weren't members of any political party. That was something that I pursued actually when I left the Tweed and went to uni. And you've had a long political career, but I think one of the things that's also interesting about you is that you've also had a career outside of politics. And I'm thinking in particular about your time at ACOM. Jenny, there's often an accusation that politicians that come up either inside the party arm of either side don't know what a sort of a real job or a real life is. What's your view on that? Do we have enough normal people in politics? It is incredibly important that the public can see a parliament that looks like them you know, a parliament comprised of people that reflect their everyday lives. But I do think that we sometimes underestimate just how much diversity there is in the parliament at the moment. You know, we currently have a party of nurses and doctors and engineers and factory workers and trade unionists and business consultants and economists. It's actually quite a wide group of people. Um, And I think that all of those people bring really important things to the table. One of the things I'd remark on in terms of my time at ACOM was A, that it taught me a lot about different styles of leadership, different approaches to bringing groups together. But secondly, I am so grateful to them that they supported me to have a professional career with them, but also to remain active and visible in the Labor Party. And I think we really, if we want people to go into politics, you know, from diverse backgrounds, We actually need community support for people's involvement in political parties. Uh, It's really important that our democratic institutions function, including parties, but you need your workplace to accept the idea that you have somebody who who works in the building and also plays a a public role for, in my case, Labor. And that might be quite challenging for some businesses, do you think, you know, in terms of where a business sits in its industry, you know, what its kind of lobbying interests are. Do you think that is challenging? for ACOM embraced it, but do you think businesses broadly embrace that concept? I think that it is certainly a source of risk for business, but it is a risk that can be managed. But it really requires a bit of a, a mature conversation about it within the community. You need journalists, including business journalists, and the businesses themselves, and the political class generally to accept that if we want a political class that 
isn't just drawn from a narrow group of political professionals. We are going to have people who are managing these conflicts of interest and potential risks in their own um, work environment and that it's possible to do it in an ethical and an appropriate way. So related to that, because I know that you're talking there essentially about the community in politics, and I know that one of your passions is increasing community participation in politics. How do we do this? And one of the things I was thinking about when I was doing my research on you was the concept of uh, citizen juries, which has been around for a while. You know, the idea that normal people, put that in quote marks, I don't know if I should, (laughs) um, you know, get an opportunity to rotate in and out of the machinery of government, if you like. Do you think that's feasible? How, How do we get more people to participate in politics? We should be really attentive to whether or not people trust politics. So 65% of Australians say that democracy is preferable to any other kind of government. But what that actually applies is 35% of Australians are willing to contemplate some other possibility. And I think that's quite a troubling number. And it means there's an obligation, particularly on people like me who are in public life, to remember every single day that we really need to nurture and build democratic capability Uh, I think that there are lots of options to do that. I think in the Australian public service, there are plenty of opportunities for public servants to build forums where citizens can really have a say in developing the politics that affect them. Uh, There's often a a real call, particularly from some marginalised groups, to be much more involved in the politics that affect their lives. And I think recognising that doing that is a, a capacity building task in the public service would be a good start. We've really got to think about our online spaces. More and more politics is migrating online, whether it's through news consumption, forums, political organisation. That's terrific and it means lots more people have access to politics than have done so in the past. But we need to be careful that the kind of political culture we're building online reflects our best selves, not our worst selves. Mm. And I'm sure we could say that the moment that we're entirely succeeding in that regard. And I guess the third thing is, and I sort of touched on this a little already, but political parties need to keep evolving and thinking about their offering. Part of my motivation for starting the Labor Environment Activist Network was to make sure that all of the people that were already members of the Labor Party and who were really committed to environment action had a really practical way of having their voice heard and working with other people who shared the same ideals. So I think there's lots of things we can do. I'm less convinced that we need a total renovation of the structures of democratic representation. I'm not sure that we need to substitute elected politicians for randomly selected people, as is sometimes suggested. But I do think there are plenty of opportunities to increase citizen involvement in politics, and it should be a priority for all of us. I want to come back to that 65-35% because it is quite interesting. It does make me think of that old uh, Winston Churchill saying, you know, democracy is um, the best of every system that we've tried, you know. (laughs) I mean, I I understand that 35% because democracy globally has thrown up some really interesting results in the last couple of years. I'm thinking of America and I'm also thinking of the UK. Do you you still think democracy works? Is it still fit for purpose? Yes. And like Winston Churchill, I think it is the best of all the available options, uh, whatever its flaws and shortcomings. But it's what I mean about the obligations that people like me in public life have. This is a really important system, particularly for safeguarding the interests of the powerless. Mm. We need to keep developing and nurturing our democracy so that it effectively delivers on that promise. Some of the challenges, I think, that have arisen in other jurisdictions um, 
come about because people start to feel that they're not bought into the democratic process. And it's at that point that people start contemplating other options, populist leaders, uh, demagogues. We need to make sure that everyone feels they have a stake in our country and its political processes. And part of that is securing economic equality for people. If people can't meet their basic needs, then they're very likely to be looking for other alternatives when they think about their politics. It's so true. I mean, I often say, look, in the end, revolutions happen when people have no hope for their children, you know, and they kind of think, well, it's not re- it's not worth it. The system's not working for me at all. You mentioned there that issue of trust in politicians. So politicians, I generally think, get a poor rap from the public. Do they deserve this? And what can be done about it? My honest experience is that nearly all of the people that I work with go to work every day trying to do something good for their communities. I will concede that I have a very different view to some of them about what would be good, but I do think all of them turn up with that intention. I think there are opportunities for us to show uh, what can be done when we really focus on the national interest. It's one of the things that's happened during the pandemic is that I think particularly in Australia, politicians across the divide have had a relentless focus on the national interest where politicians have strayed from that focus and sought to politicise the pandemic, I don't think the public's been very receptive to it. My real hope is that we go into next year being able to retain some of those characteristics. It was certainly a focus for my party, and you will have heard Anthony Albanese talk about that a lot, looking for solutions at a time like this, not looking for arguments. Now, you've been in politics for a long time. Has the way that women are treated in politics and how they experience political life, has that shifted over time? And if so, how? It absolutely has. And it's been a really interesting decade, couple of decades to live through. Uh, I have to concede that it's probably three decades, if we're honest about it, Kate. I joined just before Labor adopted our affirmative action target, our first target. And it was very controversial at the time. And the Labor Party first went to, I think, 35% women, and we now have nearly 50% women parliamentarians in the federal parliament. We always said that once you hit 30%, it would change the culture of the party, and I think it absolutely has. And the key manifestation of that is that we have a series of women leaders who have emerged Uh, through the party to play very senior roles in our organisation. And we now have a shadow cabinet that is comprised of 50% women. It's a really interesting real-time experiment because the Liberal Party at the same time contemplated the same questions and took a different path. And they are still stuck on really unacceptably low levels of female representation. I do think that the decision to set a target And to build that into our party's rules made a very big difference for us. Uh, And it's absolutely changed the culture of our show and given women the space to lead. It hasn't made the Libs any less successful, though. Look, I think that it is really important for Labor's communication with the electorate that we have a series of female leaders. I'm not certain um, that, uh, well, put it this way. I think the Liberal Party from time to time really does suffer from having a not enough female leaders empowered to speak to the electorate about the priorities for the Liberal Party. It doesn't mean that that's the only factor weighing on the Liberal Party's success, but I do think their shortcomings in that regard are a problem 
for the electorate. And you see it in the comments from their leadership saying that they need to get more women, Mm. but their resistance to quotas makes a real problem for them in that regard. I'm very proud of where Labor's got to and I would love to see the other political parties um, in the parliament do the same thing. You mentioned there about how having more women in the party, having the targets, having the quotas changed the culture of the party. Does female leadership make a difference and is it different? I'd make two comments about that. The very significant and obvious thing that female leadership does is elevate women's issues on the agenda. If you're not at the table, you can't put something on the agenda. And so there's a whole range of things that have been brought into the public domain as a consequence of Labor's female leaders. I'm thinking about paid parental leave. I'm thinking about prioritising childcare. I'm thinking even about the approach to superannuation and tax and looking at those issues through a gendered lens. Those are all consequences of having female leaders in our party. In terms of style, though, I'd make this observation. I think a mature organisation that truly values gender equality will provide space for its female leaders to adopt all sorts of different leadership styles. I don't think that there's any uniform or singular female leadership style, and I think a mature organisation lets women adopt the same kind of diversity in in their choices about how they lead um, that men are afforded. Yeah, because then you'd get to see the full spectrum, essentially, of behaviour from both men and women, I think. What's your style of leadership? How would you describe it? I've had this really nice experience of getting to work with a lot of terrific leaders in the public and private sector, and they really shaped the way I thought about the leadership task and probably made me think about it in a more conscious way than would have occurred if I hadn't worked with those people. I've got a sort of set of rules that I try and live up to myself, you know, the first of which is I try and be truthful and consequently be a person who can be trusted. I really try and recognise the work of others. The best leaders I've worked with always uh, recognise the work of their team, elevate the individuals in their team who've made that contribution and show people that when you contribute, you will be recognised. And finally, I have observed that the best, really good leaders are clear about that, what they want to do and why they want to do it. And I think that's particularly important in politics because you need to remember every day who it is that you're seeking to represent and what it is that they need you to do. I don't, of course, live up to those ideals every day, but that is, there's some of the principles that really guide my thinking when I'm making day-to-day choices about how I should behave and what I should do. We've been talking here about sort of leadership and, and particularly the issues of gender diversity within the parliament. But if we look more broadly around gender diversity, particularly in the context of now. So my observation would be that the pandemic has been a good thing and a bad thing for women. So there's more flexibility, something that women have wanted for a lot of time. But, you know, the early reports coming out around how women, particularly women with children, have coped during the pandemic is that they've done a lot more caring work as well as, you know, um, met their professional obligations. What do you think the future looks like around gender diversity and particularly through the lens of how work will how work will look for women? Mm. I think even before the pandemic, we were at an inflection point about work. There had been a series of ever-increasing demands for flexibility from employers made on employees. And I think that 
demand for people to be always on was starting to increase. I think the pandemic has really accelerated that. And what many people, particularly people with caring obligations, are finding is that work from home means that you are never off. I actually think it's going to be one of the very big conversations we're going to have to navigate. It's been uh, enabled by digital technology. People are checking emails all the time, answering them at midnight. And it's a conversation I often have with my kids. You know, they're digital natives. And I sort of say to them, with your friends, is there ever any time when you think it's acceptable to switch off? I think we are going to have to have a conversation as a society about when it's okay to disengage because the digital world we've created for ourselves is going to see us always engaged unless we actively take steps to limit that and I'm not sure that that's sustainable. Uh, Absolutely and that's certainly been the I think like I said the experience of a lot of uh, people with caring duties during the pandemic, myself included, I might add. Um, I know that, um, and again, sitting with this in this context of women and work, that Labor have launched a new childcare policy. So can you tell me about a little bit about it and what you think it will achieve? Our policy seeks to increase the childcare subsidy and it'll do that for more than a million families. Um, and we also seek to remove the annual cap on childcare benefits. The real objective here is to remove the financial penalties for those second earners in families that want to move from part-time to full-time work. At the moment, we've got a whole lot of people out there who will either lose money or basically uh, just flatline in terms of their income if they take on a fourth or fifth day of work. And it causes quite a lot of problems. Obviously, it causes problems for those families it causes a problem for those women's careers. And at an economic level, it's just really wasteful. We've got a highly educated, highly skilled female workforce with one of the highest rates of part-time work in the world. And that is because childcare here is also inordinately expensive. Tackling the childcare cost issue is a question of justice for women But it's actually a no-brainer from an economic policy perspective. It presents a way to really grow the workforce with a lot of skilled and talented women who have enormous potential to contribute to the Australian economy. Australia has done really well during the pandemic, and I know that the scientific breakthroughs that are happening are bringing a lot of hope to other countries. What was your personal experience of the pandemic on sort of a personal family and community level? I found... Amongst There were so many changes that happened. We had children at home. I ended up working from home. We reorganised our staff arrangements here to allow all of the staff here to work together. And that actually required a lot of creativity and energy to reorganise everyone's lives at home and at work. But the really big impact I noticed was that many people were emotionally affected. And it meant taking just a little bit more time and a little bit more care in some of my personal interactions with people because a lot of people were a little more fragile than they might ordinarily be. I think my political observation would be that we really saw what could happen when you come together as a community. People really acted with uh, a sense of selflessness in seeking to protect their own families and their own health but also seeking to protect the health of their communities by staying home. I actually found that quite inspirational. And equally, we saw what you can do when government puts its shoulder to the wheel. 
there are a whole lot of problems that appeared intractable prior to the pandemic that were then able to be solved during the pandemic. We did find homes for people who were homeless. We did manage to lift the rate of unemployment benefits so that people weren't living in poverty. There are things that government can do to make people's lives much better. I really hope that that is one of the key lessons that our politics takes from the experience of 2020. Yeah, it was an amazing turnaround if you think about the direction that the state was going in, what was all about, you know, um, in Australia, but also in lots of other countries pulling back the state to where the state is now. Um, And I certainly agree, it's been incredible to see what government and communities can do. Does that make you more hopeful about how we we can meet future challenges? And I'm thinking in particular of climate change. (laughs) I think you have to be hopeful and quite optimistic to be in politics full stop. And I think that uh, it's it's actually a a requirement of the job. You have to be optimistic for your community and ambitious for your nation. I do feel optimistic about climate change. It's true that the parliament has been stuck and that is a consequence of a small number of people who see a narrow electoral benefit in putting up obstacles to change But my hope comes from all of the things that are happening everywhere else. Business is taking action on climate change. It's been obvious for some time that the cheapest forms of new generation will be renewables, supported by some other technologies like batteries. There's enormous business interest in investing in hydrogen. There's community interest in putting solar panels on roofs. I think the community and business are moving on. And at some point, the Liberal Party of Australia is just going to have to catch up. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. This episode was, of course, produced by Lisa Gebelagen. If you enjoyed the episode, then make sure you subscribe and leave us a rating. And for more for Women's Agenda, visit womensagenda.com.au. I look forward to hosting you at the next episode. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.